Section 52 of The History of Prostitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ramon Escamilla. The History of Prostitution by William Sanger. Section 52. Chapter 34. New York. Statistics. Part 2. Question. If your mother had any business independent of your father, what was it? Mother's business? Numbers. No independent business? 1,880. Dressmakers? 35. Tailoresses? 26. Seamstresses, 12. Storekeepers, 9. Boarding housekeepers, 7. Servants, 6. Vestmakers, 6. Laundresses, 4. Bakers, 4. Hat trimmers, 3. Milliners, 3. Artificial flower maker, 1. Music teacher, 1. Nurse, 1. Umbrella maker, 1. House cleaner, 1. Total, 2,000. Only 120 of 2,000 women answer that their mothers had any business independent of their fathers, and they were mostly of the same ill-paid class as those alluded to in the portion referring to the occupations of the women themselves. The exceptions were boarding house, store, and bakery keepers, amounting to 20 only, the remaining 100 being servants or needlewomen. The fact that even this number found it necessary to augment the income of their families by their own exertions is another evidence of poverty. Question. Did you assist either your father or mother in their business? If so, which of them? Assisted. Numbers. Assisted neither parent? 1,515. Assisted both parents? 149. Assisted mothers, 306. Assisted fathers, 30. Totals. Assisted both parents or mothers or fathers, 485. Assisted neither parent, 1,515. Aggregate, 2,000. To this question, 30 women reply that they were in the habit of assisting their fathers, 306 say they assisted their mothers, and 149 assisted both parents. The two latter answers, embracing 455 cases, must be construed to mean such assistance in the ordinary work of a family as usually falls to the lot of children. The residue say that they never assisted either father or mother, or, in other words, that they were brought up in habits of idleness, which can scarcely have forsaken them in after life. 
and probably had some considerable agency in their fall. Question. Is your father living? Or, how old was you when he died? Age at father's death. Numbers. Father's living? 651. Under five years? 289. From five years to ten years? 208. From ten years to fifteen years? 252. From fifteen years to twenty years? 389. Unascertained? 211. Totals? 1,349. Totals, fathers living, 651. Aggregate, 2,000. Question. Is your mother living, or how old was you when she died? Mother's living, 766. Under five years, 268. From five years to ten years, 195. From 10 years to 15 years, 277. From 15 years to 20 years, 281. Unascertained, 213. Totals, 1,234. Totals, mothers living, 766. Aggregate, 2,000. From the preceding tables, it appears that more than half of these women are orphans. 1,349 of them have lost their fathers, and 1,234 were deprived of their mothers. In both cases, the ages of the children at the death of their parents are in nearly the same ratio. Thus, 289 fathers and 268 mothers died when their children were under five years of age. 208 fathers and 195 mothers died when their children were under 10 years of age. 252 fathers and 277 mothers died when their children were under 15 years of age. The average of the deaths of either parent will therefore be when the children were under five years of age, 279. From five years to ten years, 202. From ten years to fifteen years, 265. And the aggregate result that 1,479 parents died before their daughters had reached the age at which a female most needs aid and advice. At any time and under any circumstances the thought of death is dispiriting. The idea of rending all earthly ties, of bursting asunder bonds which have formed for years a part of our very existence, of leaving the world with its joys and pleasures, its cares and griefs, for the undiscovered born, is appalling in contemplation. More appalling still when the family circle is invaded and a father whom we have revered or a mother whom we have loved, is taken from us. The death of a father is a sad calamity for his children. The hand that has nourished and protected them, that has toiled for their support, is cold in the grave. Their earthly support is gone. 
but a more grievous affliction still is the death of a mother. It is she to whom the children look in all their infant sufferings. It is her ear that is ever open to their sorrows. It is her bosom on which they are pillowed in sickness, her care which guides their steps in infancy, her love which warns them of the dangers that menace them in after life. Bereft of a mother's watchful tenderness, they are comparatively alone in the world, and many of their sorrows must be dated from that event. The answers to these questions are full of material for mournful reflection, and strongly indicate the increased responsibilities of surviving relatives toward the orphans. This point has been already so strongly insisted upon that it would be a needless reiteration to argue its necessity. Question. Do you drink intoxicating liquor? If so, to what extent? Extent? Numbers. Do not drink liquor. 359. Drink moderately. 647. Drink intemperately. 754. Habitual drunkards. 240. Totals. 1,641. Totals. Do not drink liquor. 359. Aggregate. 2,000. It may be assumed, as an almost invariable rule, that courtesans in all countries are in the habit of using alcoholic stimulants to a greater or less degree, in order to maintain that artificial state of excitement which is indispensably necessary to their calling. One of the class in London said to Mr. Mayhew, when he was making the inquiries alluded to in the chapters upon English prostitution, no girls could lead the life we do without gin, and drinking is undoubtedly universal among abandoned women. Even according to the most favorable view of the replies to the query now under consideration, and admitting them to be strictly correct, it will be found that five-sixths of the total number confess they are in the habit of using intoxicating liquors. But with the knowledge of facts already ascertained in other cases, the inquirer will be compelled to believe that this is not the whole truth, for it is almost certain that the 359 who claim to be total abstinence indulge themselves in occasional potations. In prosecuting investigations like the present, there are many difficulties to encounter. A woman who is found residing in a house of ill fame will scarcely attempt to deny that she is a prostitute, although even this has been done in some cases, yet she will equivocate upon other matters. The facts of her birth, family, and life will probably be given correctly, because there exists no motive for concealment, but the answers to any questions which she deems degrading, such as relate, for example, to her habits or the state of her health, must be received with some considerable allowance, and compared with well-ascertained facts. Among the more aristocratic prostitutes it is considered a disgrace to be absolutely intoxicated, and the keeper of a first-class house would scarcely retain a boarder who was addicted to habitual inebriety. Still, the most fastidious are ready and eager to sell champagne, or what passes for it, to any visitor of liberal disposition, and will generally condescend to assist him to drink it, of course inviting all the ladies to participate. In the lower grades, it is not deemed disreputable to be inebriated, but the proprietors, knowing intoxication would interfere with their business, interdict it until late at night, 
when the mirth and fun grows fast and furious, and when visitors, women, proprietors, barkeepers, and servants frequently all contrive to be drunk, and close the night with general Saturnalia. The following morning, everything is changed. The proprietor takes his stand behind the bar, and tenders the inmates, as they appear, their bitters, namely, a bumper of raw spirits. The visitors depart about their business, and the women await, with all the patience they can command, the result of another day's campaign, anxiously watching for any contingency which may arise likely to bring them another glass of liquor. Even in this case they are narrowly watched, and as soon as the depression from the previous night's debauch has been overcome, they must either take temperance drinks or colored water when any stray customer invites them to the bar. Our decided impression is that not one percent of the prostitutes in New York practice their calling without partaking of intoxicating drinks. The effects of this habit are well known. In the first instance, the woman drinks but little, probably just enough to cause a slight artificial excitement, and bring a color to her cheeks. After a time, the proportion must be increased as the effect upon the system is diminished until the finale is a habit of confirmed and constant drinking. As a general rule, the horrible consequences then become apparent. The whole frame is relaxed, and every movement of the limbs is a motion of uncertainty. The brain is impaired, the reasoning faculties are destroyed, the powers of the stomach and digestive organs are weakened, and an attack of delirium tremens is the ultimatum, usually cured, if cured at all, at the public expense in a hospital or prison. A work of fiction, published some ten years ago, gives the following truthful account of the effects of drunkenness on prostitutes, by one of whom the words are supposed to be used. Quote, I must have drink. Such as live like me could not bear life without drink. It's the only thing to keep us from suicide. If we did not drink, we could not stand the memory of what we have been, and the thought of what we are, for a day. If I go without food and without shelter, I must have my dram. Oh, what awful nights I have had in prison for want of it. End quote. She glared round with terrified eyes, as if dreading to see some supernatural creature near her, and then continued, quote, It is dreadful to see them. There they go round and round my bed the whole night through my mother carrying my baby, and sister Mary, and all looking at me with their sad stony eyes. Oh, it is terrible. They don't turn back either, but pass behind the head of the bed, and I feel their eyes on me everywhere. If I creep under the clothes, I still see them, and what is worse, they see me. I must have drink. I cannot pass tonight without a dram. I dare not. Although this is an imaginary picture, its counterpart can be seen at almost any time in the hospitals under the charge of the governors of the almshouse on Blackwell's Island, New York City, where large numbers of such cases are constantly treated. In 1854, in the penitentiary hospital alone, more than 1,400 persons received medical assistance for delirium tremens and other maladies arising from excess in drinking. This fact induced the remarks in the report for that year that the Quote, cases actually treated here during the last year were directly caused by the lowest and foulest kinds of dissipation and vice, 
a fact which speaks trumpet-tongued in favor of shutting up grog shops and shows the absolute necessity of adopting some plan whereby the enormous amount of prostitution now among us shall be decreased End quote. since then an alteration in the law has sentenced drunken persons to an incarceration in the city prison and the number sent to blackwell's island has diminished but not to the extent which would be supposed as during eighteen fifty seven the hospitals thereon afforded relief to seven hundred and ninety one inebriates the fearful havoc upon the constitution is produced as well by the quality as the quantity of the liquors consumed let any man not thoroughly informed on these subjects taste a glass of the compounds retailed at these places and he will be immediately convinced that it would be quite as judicious an act to swallow the same quantity of camphene or sulphuric acid if diluted sweetened and colored the various liquors gin rum brandy whiskey or wine having nothing in common with the genuine articles of commerce but the name are so many varieties of the cheapest and most poisonous raw spirits that the markets afford and are manufactured in this city in large quantities to meet the demands arising from such places instances have been known where liquors subsequently sold in houses of ill fame as pure french brandy have been furnished by wholesale dealers at prices ranging from thirty-six to fifty cents a gallon there may be exceptions some few brothels of the higher rank may sell what is called good liquor but they are very rare indeed is it any matter of surprise that drunkenness or more properly speaking stupefaction and insensibility are so rife that so many constitutions are ruined and so many characters destroyed when agencies like these are tolerated question did your father drink intoxicating liquors if so to what extent father's habits numbers did not drink liquor, 548. Drank moderately, 636. Drank intemperately, 596. Unascertained, 220. Totals, 1,452. Totals, did not drink liquor, 548. Aggregate. 2000. Question. Did your mother drink intoxicating liquors? If so, to what extent? Mother's habits. Numbers. Did not drink liquor. 875. Drank moderately. 574. Drank intemperately. 347 unascertained 204 totals 1125 totals did not drink liquor 875 aggregate 2000 how much of the intemperate habits of these women must be traced to the influence of the parents example 1452 fathers 1,125 mothers are represented as having been addicted to the use of liquors in various degrees, the moderate in both cases exceeding the intemperate drinkers. And yet even moderate drinking, when pursued by parents in the presence of, 
or to the knowledge of children, is a practice open to the gravest censure. In the mind of a child, any action is deemed right if performed by a father or mother. As the children advance in years, parental customs are followed, and, in such a case as this, probably the single glass of beer or wine of the father lays the foundation of intemperance in the children. Without undertaking to argue the question of the absolute necessity for a total abstinence from all liquors under all circumstances, the proposition may be seriously submitted that the effect of this personal example upon children is satisfactorily ascertained, from many different sources, to be prejudicial to their best interests, and a natural deduction, therefore, is that it is the duty of parents to abstain. Instances are upon record where both fathers and mothers, in the temporary insanity of intoxication, have turned their daughters from home into the streets, and that, too, in cases where not even the remotest grounds existed for any suspicion of improper conduct on the part of these children. Occurrences like these are sufficient to enforce the necessity of temperance on the part of the parents, in view of the fearful responsibility which rests upon them. Question. Were your parents Protestants, Catholics, or non-professors? Religion. Numbers. Protestants, 960. Roman Catholics, 977. Non-professors, 63. Total, 2,000. Question. Were you trained to any religion? If so, was it Protestant or Catholic? Religion. Numbers. Protestant. 972 Roman Catholic 977 No religious training 51 Total 2000 Question Do you profess the same religion now? Profession Numbers Profess religion as educated 1909 Non-professors, 91. Total, 2,000. Question. How long is it since you have observed any of its requirements? Time, numbers. One year and under, 861. From one year to two years, 310. From two years to three years, 226, from 3 years to 4 years, 135, from 4 years to 5 years, 106, from 5 years to 6 years, 72, from 6 years to 7 years, 42, from 7 years to 8 years, 42, from 8 years to 9 years, 20, from 9 years to 10 years, 36. From 10 years to 12 years, 20. Unascertained, 130. Totals, 2,000. It certainly seems a very incongruous association to connect religion and prostitution, to place in juxtaposition the most noble aspirations of which the mind is capable, 
and the lowest degradation to which the body can descend. But such a contrast is not without its moral. It is not too great a stretch of imagination to suppose that of those unfortunate women who subsequently lost their position in society, some had the advantages of an early Christian education, were taught to believe in and reverence the inspired writings, were taught that there is a God who judgeth the world, and that there exists for all a future state. Reflecting upon this, and considering how deplorably such have fallen from the observance of precepts inculcated in the days of childhood, all persons will feel the necessity of watchfulness and care that the same fate does not befall themselves or their connections. The facts may teach another lesson. It may be presumed that some of these women were trained in the rigid and austere manner animadverted upon in the remarks on the causes of prostitution, and that their present career is but the recoil from that unnatural restraint. Such conclusion would afford a solemn warning to all who have charge of the education of children to choose the happy mean between the extremes of careless laxity and excessive harshness. Either course is alike fatal to the welfare of their trust, and must end in disappointment and sorrow. If it were consistent with propriety, it would not be possible to make any comparison with the results of Protestant and Roman Catholic teachings, because of the nearly equal number in each case. In the table exhibiting the religions professed by the parents, there are seventeen more Roman Catholics than Protestants. In the table of the religions professed by the prostitutes themselves, there are five more Roman Catholics than Protestants. The relative value of the two creeds as rules of life cannot therefore be made the subject of argument from such data. So far as our duties to the Almighty, to our fellow men, and to ourselves, so far as the obligations to virtue and morality are concerned, the adherents of both parties are agreed, and in the investigation of the intricate social problem of female depravity it matters but little whether a majority of the pitiable subjects of the inquiry were educated in the tenets of the Church of Rome or in the doctrines of the Reformation. If the articles of faith of either church are honestly observed by those who professedly believe in them, they will be effective in preventing immorality. But when this observance is confined to words and not exemplified by actions, neither the simple rituals of protestantism nor the more elaborate and artistically arranged ceremonials of roman catholicism can be of any avail neither if our lives accord not with our profession will it make an iota of difference in our future destiny whether we have bowed the knee in a temple devoted to roman catholic service before the image of a crucified saviour and endeavoured to train our thoughts to a contemplation of his mercy and beneficence or have knelt in a protestant church and there joined in the public confession that we are sinners. The facts exhibited in the tables show that 1,937 women had parents who were professedly members of one or the other of these communions, that 1,949 women out of 2,000 were taught to believe in the necessity of some religion, and that 1,909 of these women still assert their confidence in the creed in which they were educated. It cannot be expected that, living in the constant practice of that which their consciences must teach them as sinful, these women would have continued to observe the outward form of religion. By comparing the table upon this point with the one framed from the replies to the question, For what length of time have you been a prostitute? It will be observed that 1674 admit they have been prostitutes for six years and upward, and 1710 confess they have neglected to observe the requirements of religion for the same space of time a coincidence which leads us charitably to suppose that the crime and the omission are nearly parallel, 
so far as dates are concerned, and that hypocritical professions of religion do not rank among prostitutes' offenses. But even with their neglect of the outward requirements of faith, and while in the actual commission of known and acknowledged sin, they still preserve many traits which are much to their credit. They possess one of the chief virtues belonging to the female character, which never seems to become extinct or materially impaired, namely, kindness to each other when sick or destitute, and indeed to all who are in suffering or distress. This has attracted the attention and called forth the admiration of everyone who has been thrown into contact with them. A very touching instance of these amiable feelings occurred some years ago, and is narrated in the Westminster Review for July, 1850. A poor girl, who was rapidly sinking into a decline after a short but impetuous course of infamy, had no means of support but from the continued exercise of her calling. With a mixture of kindness and conscientiousness, which may well surprise us under the circumstances, her companions in degradation resolved among themselves that, as they said, quote, at least she should not be compelled to die in sin, end quote, and contributed from their own sad earnings a sufficient sum to enable her to pass her few remaining days in comfort and repentance. This is far from being an exceptional case. An extended hospital experience has brought under our personal observation many acts of real sympathy and kindness toward each other among the prostitute class. If one of their number is discharged and is unprovided with suitable clothing, they will club their scanty resources to supply her needs, frequently contributing articles they really want themselves. In any case of serious sickness, where prompt attention is required, they form most reliable nurses, and will cheerfully sacrifice their own rest at any time to minister to the sufferer, performing their duties with the utmost care and tenderness. Their fidelity to each other is strongly marked. It is literally impossible, in any case where a breach of discipline has occurred, to find a woman who will bear witness against any of her companions, and neither threats nor promises are sufficiently potent to extract the desired information. These traits are not submitted with any intention of offering them as an equivalent to the morality which has been violated, but merely to prove that hearts which can conceive and execute such kindly purposes cannot be entirely lost to the sense of virtue or the claims of benevolence. Truly they are but as an atom in the balance, but, like an oasis in the desert, they show that all is not arid and sterile. End of section 52 Recording by Ramon Escamilla Conway, Arkansas R-A-M-O-N E-S-C-A-M-I-L-L-A dot wordpress dot com